We had nothing to eat. And I thought that I was just going insane. So we were sitting around and with this little fire and we saw the camp commander's cat who had free reign of the camp and he came down to our area and we were starving to death. So someone suggested, let's eat the cat. So we killed the cat and we cut the head off and we cut the paws off. And we had this little carcass of about two pounds. And one of the guards came down and we told him it was a weasel and we threw a rock at it and killed it. And then he looked around and someone had neglected to bury one of the paws. And he saw the paw and he knew instantly there was a camp commander's cat. And things got very serious. And they lined us up and they said, who did this? Nobody said anything. I thought they were gonna kill us all, just execute us. And one of the people who was a ringleader in this said he did it. And I said that I did it also. And we all said we did it. I am Spartacus, you know, it was that. So they called that person and me out and the guard kicked him and beat him to the ground and just beat him unmercifully. And they hit me in the face with fists and didn't beat me as badly as they beat him. And then tied me with comma wire very tightly to a hooch and left me for a day. And with the carcass of the cat draped around my neck. And I was so crazy, I thought, maybe they're gonna let me eat this cat. But I had to bury it. So the fellow that they beat very badly died two weeks later. But to me, the tragedy of it was we didn't get the cat. That was Dr. Hal Kushner in episode seven of the Vietnam War. For many Americans, a major turning point in the Vietnam War was Seymour Hersh's reporting on a place called Nhi Lai. American soldiers had killed at least 347 unarmed civilians in that hamlet. You've probably seen pictures of the people who were murdered at My Lai, of a road choked with their bodies. But it's one thing to see pictures of the brutal things done in war, and another to hear people talk about what it was like to do them, and to experience them. In the Vietnam War, people who fought on both sides talk about crossing the line and reckoning with the fragility of their own decency. Sometimes that meant being forced to bury the cat you were desperate to eat. Sometimes that meant hacking to death someone who had been deemed an enemy. Sometimes that meant throwing a grenade down a tunnel to kill the people who were hiding there. Sometimes it meant going to live in a house that once belonged to people who were killed in a war crime after a battle. It's easy to look at pictures like Milai and think only a monster could have done that. But in the Vietnam War, we learn that war can push many people past the boundaries that they thought they had, even people we think of as decent, even likable. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, and you're listening to The American War, a podcast about how America lost its way in Vietnam and how Ken Burns and Lynn Novick are trying to help us find our way back. I'm here with Ken to talk about the seventh episode of their documentary. We burned down a whole lot of hooches today of these people who don't cooperate with us, you know. 
I don't I don't really understand it because if they are, you know, not VC, and we do that to them, you know, treat them bad, then they're going to turn VC. The Army does everything backwards. So can episodes six, seven, and eight all deal with the escalating brutality of the Vietnam War? And in this episode, there's this very plain, blunt letter from a man named Michael Holmes, who was in the Army, about burning down villagers' homes. And that's not the worst thing that anyone you talk to in this movie did, of course. You have sources who talk about assassinations and rape and killing prisoners. But I thought that letter was really evocative. And I think one thing that hit me hard in this movie was getting to know these soldiers on all sides of the war and then hearing them talk really candidly about doing terrible, even criminal things. So how do you deal with that personally as a filmmaker? You know, you guys have come to know these people, either because you're interviewing them in person or watching hours of this interview tape. What is it like when that story comes along in the middle of someone's broader story? Well, that's actually a tape that you're listening. You're listening to his voice. And what's so extraordinary about the Michael Holmes scene is that I was off someplace giving a speech, and I was approached after the speech, unrelated to Vietnam, several years ago. And people say, you know, um, I knew somebody who sent reel-to-reel tapes back and forth. And so I got the name and and sent it off to Sarah and Lynn, and they tracked the person down. And uh, we have this magnificent sort of slice of life, of uh, life in a a southwest Missouri town and a tiny, tiny town and a general store and him in Vietnam and his family back home talking about, you know, things. The whole neighborhood crowded into the general store to record their things. But in the midst of this, he does have this really frank um, sort of admission that I don't know why we're doing this. It seems like we're going to create more enemies, and the Army gets everything backwards. And it's so plain and it's so elemental and simple that it's nice to place these larger policy things in the hands of of so-called ordinary people. And Michael Holmes is, is one of the most interesting to me. For us, though, the whole film is trying to calibrate something, uh, try to calibrate an aerial view uh, through the, uh, the, the eyes of the policymakers and uh, from the even larger than that geopolitical setting, how to get to the intimacy of the soldiers, how do you describe um, what happens in the atrocities of war, uh, both from an intimate point of view or uh, from a remote point of view or from something that's more clinical and descriptive. And so all of this becomes for us an incredibly difficult and arduous task to figure out what our distance is and therefore our future audience's distance from the material at that particular moment that we're going to show. And there are lots of options and ways to do it, and a lot of it just has to do with the rhythm, the kind of respiration of a particular episode. And Seven, it's so interesting, was for us very early on an obvious, um, you know, really great episode that emerged. Trisha Reedy, one of our senior editor for this, uh, was was doing it. And then later on, it it had too many notes. And one of the things we worried about taking out and experimented taking out uh, was the Michael Holmes scene. And we so passionately missed it that we put it back in. And, and several of the other units that we did take out have remained out or half of it remained out. 
but Michael Holmes had to go in because it seemed more than anything else, it, it made the war and the experience of families and individuals in the war so intimate, uh, both at, and yet reflective of the larger policy thing. I mean, this is really William Blake finding the world in a grain of sand. Well, and you mentioned the idea of calibration, which is interesting to me because I feel like we're in a moment in just the way we talk about politics and the politics of individual life in America, where if you do one really bad thing, then you're really bad forever. And to me, that doesn't really hold in this movie, right? I mean, you have someone like Bill Earhart, who has this terrible story about, I don't know if the right word for it is rape, but he and his friends all have sex with this woman who's desperate for food during the Tet Offensive. And by, I think, certain rules of contemporary political discourse, I shouldn't like Bill Earhart, but I really like Bill Earhart. And that's one of the things I think is, for me at least, was sort of unsettling in a good way about the movie, is that you have these stories that are really hard to hear, and some of them are excusable by, you know, someone gave an order. Some of them are not excusable. This guy came up and she, you know, he found this girl and she'll have sex with all of us for sea rations. And... Yeah, I mean, I, I realize I'm sort of talking at you about it, but it's it's a mode of the movie that is so not in keeping with a lot of the way that we talk about individual no, behavior we, in politics right now. Exactly, because we are so oriented to the binary, uh, to just an endless existence of one thing or the other, black and white, a one and a zero. Uh, we've lost a capacity, it seems to me, to to sort of um, bring into our larger consciousness a a sense of how complicated and nuanced and shades of gray everything is. We know it in our own lives. We forgive in ourselves and those close of a, closer to us uh, things that are that are complicated. Um, it, it's much harder to do that at an, at a remove from somebody. And I think the calibration that I was speaking about, we have to distinguish. One is the calibration of life. You know, please don't yell at me. Let's have a a decent conversation. Or please understand this. Uh, I know it doesn't reflect well on me, but it's torturing me, and I needed to tell you this. And so real life demands a certain calibration. But also there's calibration within storytelling itself. That is to say, if we accept whatever we want to call it, normal Aristotelian poetics, that is how stories ebb and flow, there is a kind of respiration that you become aware of. There's no formula, there's no guide to this other than Aristotle's poetics. But you've, you've got to see what your material is doing. And at times, if you perceive there are too many notes, you, you, you sometimes have to kill a little darling that you like. At other times, you can't bear that loss, and there's some other adjustments that take place. So I want to distinguish between a kind of calibration of art and a calibration in life. They're not dissimilar, and they do intersect at various times. And I think with Bill, Bill Earhart, it's a wonderful thing. It puts us at odds with our desires to make instantaneous judgments and not have the kind of suspension of that facile, supposedly moral decision in favor of why human beings are so endlessly fascinating. It's not because they're perfect, all good, or evil, all bad, but in fact because they veer in between these polarities and and enrich our lives. And, and I think 
they also, by extension, enrich our stories. One thing, just hearing you talk about this, is that most of the people, I would say the overwhelming majority of the people you talk to in the movie who have done things that I think as civilians we would find terrible and hard to comprehend, they have some level of self-awareness and self-reflectiveness about those things. I mean, even in cases where they think they're right, which you know you have some of your Vietnamese sources earlier in the movie talking about things that I would probably describe as murders, you know, there there's some level of reflectiveness. And I don't know if that's sort of a prerequisite. I mean, would it have worked for you guys to get someone who is unrepentant or unreflective? Or is that just not someone who fits into your process and your way of telling these sorts of well, stories? Well, uh, you know, I, I think there are those people that populate the films. They may not just be interviews because, in point of fact, that unreflective viewpoint makes for a not very good uh, interview. Uh, in fact, those people don't even commend themselves to be interviewed for obvious reasons. But it doesn't mean the film isn't populated, whether you hear a presidential tape and, and that president or his uh, associates aren't engaged in something that is uh, remorseless in that way, or you learn a story about a My Lai mar- massacre or a land reform that kills hundreds of thousands of people instituted by the communists. You know, all of these things are part of our larger calibration, and we're watching and seeing uh, because we don't want to in any way seem to be placing a thumb on the scale in any direction. And I noticed early on when the films are unformed, there's often among the warm bodies that we continually bring in to watch, that is to say warm bodies are people who aren't filmmakers or aren't experts in Vietnam, we just want them to watch, that there is an early uncomfortableness at one scene, and then they suddenly realize down the line, oh, it's been matched with a, a kind of comparable thing. I'm, I, I don't mean necessarily equalizing, but, but more often than not, you will see something which um, you begin to realize that just as you're beginning to solidify some thought or some idea about the American side, then the other side does it too, and it helps sort of keep things a little bit loose and free from making that final certain decision. And we find certainty and the fundamentalism that also often attends uh, certainty, one of the great enemies, not only in the world, but in filmmaking. And what we like there is that kind of openness and that uh, ability to find uh, things other than the simple binary. I wanted to sort of go back to the question of the brutality of the war, because I think that is a central fact, but maybe a more complicated one than we think it is. You've made three movies about Americans at war, and we talk a lot about the ways in which they're similar. But was there something distinct about this war that made not just Americans cross the line in spectacular ways, but that produced such horror about those events at home? Well, you know, I would like to fit this neatly into that compartment, but I really can't. Don't fit um, it in neatly. That's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, there are there, all wars are the same. The Civil War is very unusual because Civil Wars usually produce mass civilian casualties. And with exception of the killing that took place in Missouri and Kansas before, during, and after the war, there's almost no civilian deaths, negligible civilian deaths in our Civil War, which is 
um, one of its, you know, odder and, and more interesting and I think perhaps positive features, despite all of the carnage. You know, in World War II, we did um, a lot of damage. There are incidents of murders, not of innocent civilians in that way, but what does bombing civilian populations uh, not count as the same kind of murder? You know, do we make a distinction between a knife or a gun? No, but we somehow do if it's a, if it's a remote bomb. And I think that, that uh, what happened in Vietnam was actually a fortunate thing, is that the, the, the press and the ability of the press to get up close and the contentiousness of the war, the fact that it wasn't all agreed upon 100% back home the way World War I essentially was, uh, permitted these things to seep out, to leak out. And we, we basically raised our standard of decency that much higher. Um, now, it still didn't, um, you know, exonerate uh, the bombers. And I don't mean to do that, the people who are, you know, you know doing it from on far. But I, I think that, that Vietnam helped to bring to bear that, you know, as we say and, and worked on the, the language very, very carefully, you know, that civilian, the, the deaths of civilians... Uh, is common to all war. It's one thing to accept that war is savage. It's another to really confront that fact and grapple with what it means for our understanding of human nature. On the one level, there's atrocity in humanity, uh, you know, mutilation, not, you know, not taking prisoners, um, abuse of the other, dehumanization, these things happen in every war, and that's Carl Marlantis says very beautifully that, you know, we're not the top species on the planet because we're nice. That's Lynn Novick again. I wanted to bring her back for this episode because she interviewed a lot of the veterans. That meant sitting with them as they relived some of the worst experiences of their lives, including terrible things they'd done to other people. I wanted to know what those conversations were like and how Lynn and Ken incorporated those stories into the documentary. Was your sense that the sides in Vietnam escalated in response to each other? I mean, obviously, you have a huge American attachment to prisoners of war, and then you also have things like the Phoenix Program or the Massacre at My Lai. I mean, it seemed like some of the individual soldiers you talked to felt strongly about those events and what it either required or licensed them to do. But on a larger perspective, do you think it was... I don't know if retaliatory is the right word, but escalatory. I think one thing I want to say before I even answer that question is that um, we do tend to focus on the atrocities that became infamous, and me and I would be at the top of the list because they're horrific and because they, you know, we, 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 we're obliged to remember them and to try to figure out how did these things happen and why and who's responsible and what accountability was imposed on those who were responsible. And um, that's very important. But we also have to take a step back, I think, thinking about the Vietnam War and think about the, the numbers. If there's 3 million Vietnamese that were killed, according to the best guess we have, including a million North Vietnamese soldiers, 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers, that leaves a lot of people who were killed who were civilians, um, and there's Viet Cong guerrillas also in there, and we don't have an exact number for that. But um, most of the people who died in the Vietnam War, maybe half, were civilians. Many, many people were killed 
by um, indiscriminate use of firepower. And that's bombing and artillery and naval battery and that kind of thing. And so, and we don't consider those atrocities. That was just collateral damage, unfortunate, just what happens. And um, so there's something sort of inherent in how we wage the war that we have to think about as a society. So that's just one piece of this puzzle because that we, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And it's easier to focus on a unit going into a village and perhaps killing everybody there, which happened at Milai, or almost everybody. That's unimaginably horrendous, evil, awful. Just I don't even have the words to describe what that is. But that does not really represent how most of the Vietnamese who died in the war were killed. You know, for this movie, you interviewed people who had experienced harsh treatment and torture, as well as people who did terrible things. I assumed, you know, when you're going to interview Hal Kushner or Everett Alvarez or someone else who was a prisoner of war, that you knew that that was a substantial part of their story. I assume that when you were sitting down with Vince Nokamoto or some of your other sources, you didn't necessarily know from the beginning that something like that that was really terrible was going to be part of the interview. Were you? How do you prepare for the possibility of something like that coming up in an interview? Well, it's not like going to trial where, you, you know, the advice to a lawyer is don't ever ask a question that you don't know the answer to because you don't want to have your witness say something that you don't want anyone to hear, on, you know, in the trial. Our situation is sort of the opposite, which is that we sometimes we know the answer because we've, talk to the person or they've written about it or they've said it before or something like that. But often we don't know. And I think often people are, you know, in that moment deciding what they're going to say or what they're going to tell you. So you sort of see that negotiation in someone's head of thinking, okay, I think I'm going to tell you what really happened on this day in my experience of the war. So it's always a surprise. And even if you kind of know, when the words come out of someone's mouth, it's different because it's not just the information that they're conveying, it's who they are and how they say it and what they choose to tell you and what's the expression on their face. And there's a lot of information that comes across that's not just the the facts. And so you can't really prepare yourself. I think the most important thing, at least for me doing these kind of interviews, is to say to myself, I want to know who this person is, what they remember, what happened to them, what they did, And no matter what they say, I'm going to keep an open mind. And I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm not going to think about how could you do that or, you know, how could you let that happen or whatever. I just want to hear what they have to say, and I want to just be present. And I want to extend humanity to them, whoever they are. Well, one thing I wanted to ask about was, I mean, obviously by the time that say, Bill Earhart tells us that story about this guy coming in and saying, hey, I found this girl who will have sex with all of us for C-rations. Um, you know, we know him to a certain extent by that point in the film. We like him, I think. I liked him by the time he told that story. I liked him after he told that story. Does letting viewers hear that story after getting to know someone change their sense of who can do this sort of thing? I would hope so. Because I think it's maybe a cliche to say, but I think all of us are capable of doing terrible things and doing incredibly brave and courageous and valorous things. And no one has the market corner and no one is immune. And I think that's the power of what Bill Earhart 
gets across when he decides to tell us that story. I'm not going to say he's a good person or a bad person. He's harder on himself than anybody else ever would be. The fact that he wrestles with it to this day and can't forgive himself is what stays with all of us, really. We're very grateful that he was willing to share that with us. It was not easy for him to do. Um, I recently went to see him and had the privilege of showing him that scene, and his wife and his daughter were there, and he talks about them in the moment. He says, you know, I really, I should have said no. And I'm still, that's the one thing that bothers him after all these years because his, his mother's a woman, his wife is a woman, his daughter's a woman. And watching, I can, watching him and his wife and daughter all crying, watch that scene, was quite something. You know, watching his wife hold his hand and sort of tell him it's okay and you did the right thing to tell that story was very moving. It's hard to hear about the things that happened on both sides of the Vietnam War. And for me, one of the things that makes Ken and Lynn's movie more powerful is that it gives us time to get to know the people who did some of those things. That means we can't dismiss them as abstract monsters we don't have to think about too carefully. Instead, we have to reckon with the fact that people we've come to know and like can make terrible decisions and do deplorable things. And we have to think about what in the circumstances of the Vietnam War made it easier for them to make those decisions. Next time on The American War, we'll look at happens when the war comes home, especially to college campuses like Kent State and Jackson State. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Share with friends and family and find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about the documentary, go to WashingtonPost.com slash The American War and follow me on Twitter at Alyssa Rosenberg. This podcast is produced by Carol Alderman and Adriana Ucero with art direction from Chris Rucan. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg. This is The American War. If you like The American War, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.